this. We're going to be in Joshua, coming back to our, our study here on Sunday evenings, uh, looking at crossing over, and I want to read from Joshua chapter 17 tonight, beginning at verse 12 and reading down through verse 18. Joshua 17, we were in this chapter already uh, talking about the uh, subsidiary tribes of Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, uh, going back on to Father's Day. And now we're going to just kind of focus in on one of those tribes a little bit and some lessons that we pick up here. So Joshua chapter 17, beginning at verse 12. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites, which would dwell in that land. Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxen strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. The children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, for as much as the Lord hath blessed me hitherto? And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country, and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Beth Shean and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people, and hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot only, but the mountain shall be thine, for it is a wood. And thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine. For thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. Father, just... Help us now as we spend time in your precious word. Lord, we thank you for chronicling, giving us the historical information about what is happening here as the children of Israel by tribes go into the land, begin to secure their property rights that you have gifted them with. And Lord, to see the spirit, the, the responses of these different tribes to the great opportunity that you give to them to gain not only the blessings of having a homestead for themselves, but really securing blessings for their children and their children after them. But Lord, even beyond that, that it demonstrates a lot of how they viewed their God. And Lord, while we're not necessarily talking about property for us, you give to us many precious promises that we have to really adhere to and to claim by faith. And Lord, we have to believe something special about you if we're going to be motivated to do that. And so Lord, teach us and guide us in your word to help us in our daily lives tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was reading an article uh, recently and uh, it reminded me of the idea of growth, the importance of growth. And that's 
in the text that we've read tonight, that's what these people are really concerned about. Uh, it's not that they were already without room and bumping elbows with one another. They just got there. But, th- but they're looking at themselves and they're kind of forecasting ahead a little bit, anticipating the future and saying, mm, we're going to run into problems eventually. It's kind of like us looking at our future road conditions here in Horry County or something like that, you know. It's like, mm, there's going to be problems soon, right? And that's really what was going on here. Growth is an important topic. I remember reading about the uh, earthquake that hit Japan, what, maybe 12 years ago now? It's been quite some time. There was a big earthquake just off the shore there. It resulted in a tsunami. The tsunami came into shore, and you might remember that it, that it hit and damaged the Fukushima nuclear plant there and compromised the safety, and they had to evacuate uh, just so many of the people in the outlying areas there. But uh, even uh, in the areas that were believed to be safe, you still had very concerned parents. And I guess I kind of get that, you know. I mean, you're always wondering, are we far enough away? Are we in the safe zone or not? Uh, but this picture that I put up here uh, is, uh, shows these people in hazmat or medical uh, gear of some sort and see these little children there. The reason they're being brought to be examined is because they have stunted growth. And a lot of the parents... And a lot of the teachers that were observing these children uh, having stunted growth thought maybe it's because, or actually they were thinking it's probably because of the radiation uh, that might be still encroaching, still kind of lingering, and that radioactivity has affected these children. So they ran a battery of tests on these children and found out there was absolutely no evidences of radioactive influence here in this case. After lots of tests and inquiries, they did find in almost every case what seemed to be the problem. And the problem they discerned was that overly concerned parents were keeping their children inside all the time, not letting them play, really restricting their their lifestyles, and stressing the children out that was causing them to not naturally produce the growth hormones that would allow them to grow. You know, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it? The concern that my child be healthy went to a point of being so overly concerning that it actually did the damage that they were trying to avoid in the first place. You know, we we ought to be concerned about growth when we talk about our children. We want them to grow up healthy. But more important than physical growth and stature, and well-being is that idea of spiritual growth. Now, this passage of Scripture is giving us an account. It really doesn't have anything to do with spiritual growth other than the fact it does demonstrate spiritual attitudes of people here. It does reflect upon their ideology of God, their view of Him their response to what He has allotted for them and directed them to do. And here in verse 14, as we read, here's the children of Joseph. 
and they're concerned about having room to grow. Sometimes when a business or a company or uh, wants to grow, it tries to retrofit a space after the fact. You know, they, maybe they didn't anticipate that they were going to be as successful as they ended up being. Well, that's a good problem to have, of course. You, you know, you want to have growth and profitability. But ideally, uh, a good engineer in uh, building a building will try to anticipate all the future possibilities. So you might have a building with heavy manufacturing equipment going in, and so uh, they're going to lay down the, the concrete slab very differently than they would for your home, for instance. The way they would reinforce it, uh, the way they're even going to pour the footers around the outside of it, for instance. You know, Are we going to later add a second level? Well, we need to make sure the concrete footers are robust enough to handle that extra weight of a, a second floor. And even what you do in the, the construction of that first floor, framing it up, you know, is it capable of holding uh, another story or beyond that even? And so anticipation for growth is an important thing. As the building committee and myself have been meeting, you know, we've kind of gone back through a little bit and picked up the history, and we've shared some of these things as we've met with the congregation and talked about, you know, when, when we built this building, you know, the Lord gave us this property. Uh, thankfully, God gave us a, a very wise architect that had foresight and suggested that we master site plan the property, and that was good because there's been many churches that have uh, just, you know, put their, built a piece of, got a piece of land and just built their building and just a spot on the property and later said, oh, you know, I wish we hadn't put it there, you know, if we had just moved it here or oriented it this way, then it would allow us so much uh, better usage of our overall property than what we have. And so, uh, thankfully, we've, we've sort of anticipated some of those things. Now, even your best foresight still can't see everything, can it? Uh, you've sat down, you've planned things, but there, there needs to be an anticipation of growth, growth uh, for a business, growth for a church, but especially growth, not just for a tribe of Israel, but growth for a Christian, spiritually speaking. And while this is talking about a tribe and about their expansion numerically over time, uh, what we see happening in them and some of their flaws, I think, are the same kind of cautions that we need to be aware of as believers. For instance, uh, we're told in Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 2, rather, verses 20 and 21, and if I can paraphrase what's going on here, talks about how we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the, and the prophets. We being the church, uh, we coming together as individual believers, make up really a a building, if you would. We're often described that way. Jesus Christ himself being that chief cornerstone. And they still lay cornerstones, sort of in a commemorative sense these days, but while they were commemorative even in the days of Paul, they also had a structural significance. They would build it off that cornerstone to keep everything true and to keep everything strong. 
And so, of course, Christ is that, that pivotal, that all-important cornerstone. And in Him, all the building is fitly framed together so that, as it says there, that we grow up unto a holy temple in the Lord. And we know that individually, the Spirit of God lives inside of us, and so we are the temple of God, each of us independently as we go about our normal days. But as we come together as the body of Christ, there is a sense in which we, as a conglomerate, collectively, uh, form an ability to worship God. That's why it's important for us to gather together, where two and three are gathered together. There God is in the midst. And of course, that is indicative of His holy surroundings. That is surpassing even the modern engineers, what we're talking about here. Uh, modern engineers, with all their smarts, can't do what God does in putting together a body of believers. They can frame their buildings and foundations and machines together, but they cannot make the building grow. And yet, that's what the church is all about. It's, it's growth. And we're not talking about adding new buildings. We're talking about how God brings people in. And how the Lord has blessed and brings even specific people with certain gifts, certain spiritual gifts at certain times. You know, over the, the limited history our little church has, it's been exciting to see you know, what God does and how He does that at various times. No mistaking that. True believers are fused together in Christ and grow together in, with Him and together with one another. While it was good for the children of Joseph that they were interested in growth, they also revealed some of the reasons for their growth being stifled. And it's good to want to grow, good to want to anticipate growth. But there's even just like there's going to be some wrong things that we're going to be warned about in the attitude of the, of the tribe of Joseph here, the children of Joseph, so there is sometimes in the body of believers some wrong mindsets about growth spiritually concerning. Uh, there are some churches out there that are just about the numerical growth, and uh, really almost anything takes a back seat if we can get more people in. Sometimes doctrine suffers. Sometimes the, the forms of worship honoring Christ suffer in that way. And so we need to realize that as far as adding numerically to the church, Jesus said, I, I will build my church. You know, he will add to the church daily, such as should be saved, is the pattern we see in the book of Acts chapter 2. So why are we often stifled in our spiritual growth? Why sometimes does a church, a local church, not grow as it should? Why do sometimes we as individual believers not grow in our walk with the Lord? And we can see some of these things. And I just want to bring out three cautions from this passage of Scripture tonight that may be true of us as Christians, or at least we can be guarded that they not be true of us as Christians. And the first one is this, beware of a complaining spirit. Beware of a complaining spirit. We need to be aware of it. We need to be cautious about it because it is something that's easy to do subconsciously. Now, it's easy to spot in someone else. You ever notice that? 
And maybe you've even had this happen where you're listening to someone complain about someone else's complaining. <laughs> or they're, they're, they're relating about complaints and you're thinking to yourself, you know, pretty sure I've heard you kind of gripe and complain a little bit from time to time. And then you're stopping and think, mm, am I a complainer? You know, do I have a blind side? The truth of the matter is what? We, we all fall into this trap of complaining. Where does the root of complaining come from? Well, it comes from uh, not being careful about observing the 10th commandment, which is thou shalt not what? Covet. You know, that caution of covetousness for us is so important because it really boils down to our opinion about God personally. And we're going to see this. When the children of Israel come to Joshua in verse 14, their spirit is not just one of ambition. And we have recently seen someone a group of people that I want to contrast with these children of, of Joseph that we're looking about here, and it is the children of Caleb. It's been a few weeks, but how different these people are than Caleb and his clan when they came and they asked for more. What was true of Caleb's clan? Well, uh, what, what's going on is here they are expressing disapproval, but what has already been done. They're critiquing the delineations of the borders here. What Caleb is doing instead is never criticizing. If you go back to Joshua 14 and reread those verses like 6 through 12 there, you'll find out that he's never showing discontent. He's not griping or complaining about what he has. But he's looking and saying, hey, there's more that can be done in addition to what we have here. He knows the plan. He's not striving against it. But he's going inside of that plan and saying, what more can I do that harmonizes with what God has called me to do? When these children of Joseph come and ask why, you know, they, they're not simply questioning, they are complaining. There is a, a spirit of complaint here. It displays a lack of submissiveness. And sometimes children do this when parents just tell them to do something, and the children come back and say, why, right? And then you give another explanation, and they say, why? And after a while, you realize, you know what? Because I said so, right, you know? Uh, sometimes it doesn't uh, respect getting an answer in those cases. They just need to obey. These children of Joseph could have expressed gratitude for what they had been allotted and sought to do more. But do we always know why God asks us to do certain things? We don't, do we? Sometimes God leads us in certain paths and we might know a certain measure of information, but we can't see the whole future. God never gives us that, right? There's always, always elements of trust and details that are beyond us in that way. And yet we say, but I would like to know why. 
You ever ask yourself this, why do I really want to know why God's doing this? And is it possible that the reason we would like God to give us an explanation as to His reasoning or His rationale or His choosing of something so that we can evaluate it and decide whether it really is valid or not? Well, whoa, are we in a place to critique God? Do we pull out our measure stick and say, God, are you, are you in alignment? That's not our role, right? That's us trying to play God in that way. And so really a complaining spirit, if we're not careful, is really calling God on the carpet and saying, I need to, you to give me an explanation You owe me that, God. Now, we might not say things in that tone, but regardless of how we might posture ourselves before the throne of God, still, we need to just sometimes keep our mouths shut and say, yes, Lord. The point is, if we know what God wants us to do, do we need to know why God wants us to do it? That's the neat thing about reading through your Bibles, right? You see real-life instances over and over again of God telling people to do certain things and not always telling them why they're doing it that way. God gave very strict guidelines as how Noah was to build an ark. But God didn't say, now, here's why I'm sizing it the way I'm sizing it. Here's why it's going to be this way, you know. God tells Abram to leave his land, and he gives him some information, but he doesn't tell him everything, right? And you go over and over again in the Bible, and there's many times God leads and only gives immediate enough information, says, I'll give you your marching orders from there next. The children of Israel going through the wilderness, they never knew where they were going next. They just followed the cloud. Right? Do you imagine there were some complainants like, could we possibly get a map with or some GPS coordinates here? I would like to know. You know, I, I remember when we would take family trips, sometimes the kids would be like, you know, where are we going next? What you know, we're going, you know, we knew we we're going to grandma's house, you know, or so, something like that, you know, but which route are we gonna take? You know? And sometimes I might change that route that I'm intending to go. Sometimes you get detoured by construction, you know. So you don't always know those things. Sometimes you just feel like saying, just, just ride, right? Just ride. I wonder if God ever feels that way with us, you know. Oh, my children, just ride, you know. I'm, I'm going to get the van of your life where it's supposed to go, if you'll just trust me. Get in the van, you know, and trust me. Stop critiquing and examining everything. These children of Joseph also complained by their saying their allotment was too hard. Too small, too hard. They have more land, but it would mean facing enemies with iron chariots. Notice verse 16, you know. Uh, they come to Joshua, and Joshua, you know, points out, well, you've got land, you know. Go, go secure that land. Oh, there's Canaanites in the land. They have chariots of iron. Hmm. I think if I was Joshua, I might be thinking, who else had chariots? Oh, yeah, 
Pharaoh had chariots. Where are they? Pretty sure they're pretty rusty by now in the bottom of the Red Sea. You know? I mean, is that really a problem? And so you say, well, I can understand this. What, what Joshua was telling him to do there is hard. Well, guess what? In contrast, coming back to Caleb and his clan, Caleb came and said, you know, there's a mountain. He says, I know it's tough, but give me that mountain. He wanted the hard. He wanted to do some, attempt something that was difficult by faith in God. As an old, older man, I caught myself. I didn't say old man, older man. You know, when we complain, remember with whom we are ultimately displeased. You say, well, I, I'm complaining about this area of my life. Well, trace it back. Why does that area of your life exist? Okay? Sometimes I would, you know, talk to my children about contentment in this way, and they might say something. I'm like, well, you know what? We have this home, or we have these opportunities, or we have this vehicle, or whatever. And sure, we can always look and say, you know, it'd be nicer in some ways if we had B instead of A, right? Whatever that is. You know, but why do we have A? Okay? Uh, well, ultimately, this is what God has provided us at this moment. Okay? He's, you know, brought this along for us. So if I'm striving and griping and complaining about this item, indirectly, I'm really telling God, you're not a very good provider. And we need to stop ourselves and really trace it back to the authorship of who is the father of lights, because every good gift cometh down from above, right? And so it is personal. Don't say, well, this isn't personal. This is just about material things. No, it's not. Just, just like you as a parent, you know, if the child sits down and complains about the food on their plate, dad says, don't let me hear you complain about that. Your mother worked hard at putting that. Well, the child might have thought, well, I wasn't, I wasn't taking a shot at mom. But even though that wasn't in your mind, that is what happened because she's the one that cooked it, right? Same way. Everything we have, God has cooked up for us. So when we look at it and we're tempted to complain about it, be careful. Children, you are to obey and honor your parents in the Lord. Complain about your parents. The text of Scripture there in Ephesians is saying, Ephesians chapter 5 and into chapter 6 there, if you're complaining about your parents, well, who gave you your parents? I've heard children say, I didn't get to pick my parents. No, you didn't. Guess who did? God did. And so if you're going to complain about your mom, if you're going to complain about your dad, guess who you're really complaining ultimately to? About God. He goes down through the list of submission, you know, from one to the other, and he talks about other relationships. Wives submitting to husbands. Husbands and wives submitting mutually to one another. You know, you say, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in this marriage because I took a vow before God. God, right now, this is who God wants me to be with. If I'm upset, I need to be careful because I'm, I'm upset with a sovereign God who has allowed me to be in this particular relationship. Employees submitting to employers. Why? Thinking, this is the job God has given to me at this point. 
employers treating employees correctly. So we understand all of this ties back higher up as we are looking. So beware of a complaining spirit. Secondly, beware of a compromising spirit. Now, why is it that the children of Joseph didn't have enough room? And the answer is because they did not rid themselves of the people who weren't supposed to be there. They stopped short. They, here was the goal, and they compromised. Well, we got rid of a lot of them. Well, that's not what God said, you know. So, why did they compromise? Well, one is because they paused. Now, it says in verse 13, when they had waxen strong. And it's not talking about the Canaanites in the land waxing strong. Notice carefully what it says in verse 13. It says, and yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxing strong. Well, wait a minute. If they're waxing strong, then, you know, they're mighty. But here's the idea behind strong here. The word can mean hardened, holding, retaining. It's the idea that is built into the bad disposition that we call complacency. And so it works this way. You say, how does strength, waxing strong, come into complacency? If you grow strong financially, you can become content in a wrong way that we call complacency. In other words, I don't care. I've got my ease. The, Jesus tells a story, right, in the New Testament. The man who had all these riches from his bumper crops. And he says, wow, you know, what am I going to do? I'll pull down my barns and build greater ones. Obviously, he didn't have enough space to just add on additional ones somehow. And he says this, and then I'll take my ease and say to my soul, soul that has much goods laid up for many years. You know what he was demonstrating there? Complacency. He was just going to shift into neutral. He was just going to coast through life. And that is taking it the other extreme, right? You know, one is complaining, caring and, and, and discontent in, in this way, in an improper way. The other one is, you know, oh, I, I've, I've got everything I need, and I'm going to be unspiritual in this area of my life. The picture is that the children of Joseph had grown comfortable in their own strength. Dangerous contentment because it loses sight on dependence on God. They weren't thinking, Lord, we need you today to help us finish the job here. There were no more Jerichos or great fortified cities. There were just a lot of Canaanites scattered in the land. Well, this is going to be a lot more work, tracking these down. You know, can't we just call it a day? You know... We, we have to understand what it's okay to be settled in. For instance, uh, would you take your television set and uh, turn it into some sort of picture frame by pausing a movie scene and just leaving it there indefinitely? You know, and say, well, that's not really what that's intended. It's supposed to continue if it's a television to... Uh, fluctuate and show scene after scene. 
In the same way, sometimes we get kind of frozen framed in our life about some area of our flesh. This is what happened to David in Jerusalem as a king. He was wealthy. Things were going well. He had enough army to send him out to do battle. He was supposed to be there with them. He's just, you know, kicking back, having a good time. And during that time of pause in his life is when he fell into immorality, led to assassination of the woman's husband. Why? Because he had waxen strong. He had become complacent. And he had let down his guard. Oh, we need to be careful. Compromise comes often when we pause in the wrong way. Something else about their compromising spirit is they were permissive. The people of the land were allowed to stay. It says in verse 13, it doesn't say that they didn't drive them out. It says they didn't utterly drive them out. It says, we'll, get, we'll give you that you did get rid of a lot of them. But the point is, you were supposed to get rid of every one of them. And this is where a permissive spirit comes in. If you hold your place here and just flip over a couple pages to the book of Judges, I want you to see that this happening here is a systemic problem, a cancer that grows, not just localized to this tribe. Judges chapter 1 and verse 28. It says, and it came to pass when Israel was strong. Same idea there. You know, they, they had a, a lot of confidence in themselves. They, they grew complacent that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not, here it is again, utterly drive them out. But notice who it's talking about here. All Israel. Before it, we're just talking about the children of Joseph, right? Verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal, but the Canaanites dwell with them among, became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants. Verse 32, but the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, and the, notice it changes, instead of the Canaanites uh, dwelling among the Asherites, it's the Asherites, there's a flipping here in the, the wording of Scripture here. The inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali, verse 33. Verse 34, the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. So very slowly what you're seeing, well, it's okay, we'll just leave them alone. They'll leave us alone. Guess what? In time, they won't leave you alone. When you compromise and you begin to allow certain aspects of fleshly lust to linger in your life, and you don't ask the Spirit of God to help you to be victorious over every vestige of your fallen flesh, that will begin to get a foothold, and that will begin to be more dominant. You have to say, you know what, I can't be content in my Christian life while there's anything that is displeasing to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, you know, the battle of the mind is a very important thing. And you have thoughts coming to you. I mean, you're always thinking. You never turn off your brain. It's like a spigot, right? And, and things occur to you, and you're like, where did that thought come from, right? Well, you can't always be responsible for what occurs to you. 
But then what you do with that thought is your responsibility. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, bringing into captivity every thought, no compromise, every thought to the obedience of Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, and then verse 9, he's talking to the believers of Galatian, and obviously they've They have compromised. They have become permissive. And he says to these Galatian believers, ye did run well. There's a sense in your Christian life, you were were doing so well in your walk, in your run for Christ. Who did hinder you? And then he says this, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You begin to get just that little bit of, of sinful yeast, that lustful yeast in your life, and this thought, and yeah, this doesn't seem so bad, and you know, my Bible doesn't specifically say I shouldn't do this. You begin to allow certain things, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and you have a problem. We're talking, Becky and I were recently talking, you know, as we're driving around seeing all this building going on and stuff like that, and uh, talking about houses with garages, and uh, they're building some upscale apartments right across the street from our neighborhood, and they're, they're building um, banks of garages, which, you know, we don't know. We're, you know, kind of surmising uh, maybe that they'll rent those separate on top of people's rent because, you know, you just like having a garage, you know, especially if you've transferred from up north, you know. But I'm a southern boy. I never had a garage growing up down here. So when we lived in Chicago, you know, it was nice when we could put our car in the garage, but it seemed like it was a battle because there was always well, let's buy this piece of furniture, or let's do that, or let's do this project. Well, where are we going to do it? It's winter in Chicago. Pull the car in the driveway, do that. So almost never had the luxury by my own fault, okay? And when we had moved here, our house had a garage, but guess what? I closed it in and made a study for myself, okay? Not that I wouldn't love to have a garage, but you know what? You have to defend that garage, right? It's easy for it to fill up. You know, and I see this as I drive around during the daytime. Some people have their garage doors open. Some of them are immaculate. Looks like they hired someone to come in, and all their rakes are, you know, in order, and they have this nice shelving and stuff like that. And other people, you know, they, they've got their car in there, but they can't open the doors, you know. So, so what happens? Put this out there. Put that out there. Put this, you know. Let's just, we'll handle this, you know. We do that spiritually sometimes in our lives, don't we? We kick the can down the road. We become permissive. That's what's happening here. Thirdly, compromise is that they were passive. They thought, well, if we're going to let them stay, these Canaanites, we're going to put them to tribute. In other words, we're going to make them serve us. They allowed them to stay because they offered some perks for the present. This was their justification for their permissiveness. But you know what? The wisest man apart from Christ became a little bit like this too, Solomon. For all of his smarts, for all of his intelligence, for all of his wisdom, he had a couple major breakdowns, and one of them was the area of realizing he should only have one wife. Okay? And he had hundreds of wives and concubines. And his justification for marrying foreign wives, according to 1 Kings 11, verse 3 and 6, 
was alliances. You know, I'll marry the daughter of this king from this land. I'll marry the princess from this land. And because she's my wife, daddy's not going to attack me, right? Well, that, that is good human logic sometimes, but you know what? It defies what God's Word says. And when we try to make our logic higher than God's truth, we're always going to run into problems. We know that ultimately it says that his wives turned away his heart and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord. He was permissive. Allowed this one. Then, then wifey comes to him and says, you don't love me. You build a temple for Jehovah God. I miss serving my God. Will you build a temple for my God? You know, and on it goes. Give an inch, he gave a mile. I love what 3 John 1, 2 tells us. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. With all of our attention on physical well-being and eating healthy and medical care, we need to really give our concern to our soul's health. And we become permissive, we become passive, we, we compromise our soul's health, just like these people were compromising with regard to the blessings that God was giving to them in land form. Thirdly, we need to beware of a conceited spirit. There is something that is under the surface here. Manasseh, remember when it talks about the children of Joseph, he had two. Ephraim and Manasseh. This is specifically talking about Manasseh here. Manasseh is the firstborn of Joseph chrono chronologically, even though, remember, Israel blesses Ephraim above Manasseh uh, when they were children. Uh, Manasseh is the firstborn, and there is an emphasis on them being considered the children of Joseph. You see it in verse 14 of this chapter. You see it in verse 16. You see it in verse 17. Why? Well, because Manasseh was the favored son of Joseph. Remember when he brought the two sons in to be blessed by grandpa, he, he was very intentional about putting Manasseh towards the right hand of his father to get that, that primary blessing. And remember what Israel did? He, he crossed his hands over like this because he knew that God wanted him to give the primary blessing to Ephraim. But it showed something about Joseph. Maybe the, the one marker in Joseph's life, because uh, we always talk about reading the, the, the account of Joseph and saying, you know, there doesn't seem to be one spiritual flaw in him whatsoever. And I'm not sure we would say this is a spiritual flaw, but, you know, he's, he's struggling with wanting to, to make sure that chronological son gets that blessing, and yet God had something different. There seems to be a mindset of the whole tribe, perhaps, because of this. Maybe it's passed down, a sense of entitlement. There seems to be a mindset of expecting preferential treatment as a whole tribe now. There's a spirit of arrogance, and we see that right in verse 14. I am a great people, right? Whoa, you know, a little big for your britches there, aren't you? Right? 
Do you think you're better than everybody else? They did. They may not be speaking of their talents and their abilities. It may simply refer to their size. But they saw themselves as a special case, as deserving special treatment and attention, rather than just saying, you know what, let's just be content with what God has given to us. And so we need to be careful. Are we today as Christians content to be part of the church where the Word of God is proclaimed? But maybe we ourselves individually have little personal desire to be in the Word ourselves and be transformed by it. And sometimes there can be a spiritual conceit among the body of Christ where we think, I don't need to be very aggressive and pursuing God in my devotional life because I go to a solid church, you know. I, I, can, I can coast here. You know, being in the church will keep me where I need to be. And yet, sometimes I've, I've had pastors tell me, saying, you know, uh, we had a discussion about, you know, changing our service schedules around, and, and, and I'm not suggesting that it's a good thing to do, but uh, one pastor was saying that they were talking about uh, not having a certain prayer service that they had traditionally had for a long time because nobody was coming to it. Sometimes the pastor would show up and he was the only one there. And so he's like, you know, we're, we're considering not doing that, and boy, it rose, raised such a ruckus, this guy told me, in his congregation of people who were like, and he's like, you know, it's a, he said, it's just amazing to me that everybody's concerned that we have it, but yet nobody's coming to it, right? He said, it's like they want to be in a church that has the prayer service, I just don't want to have to be the one that goes to it. You know what that showed was a little spiritual conceit in some of the individuals within that church. You know what? I, you know, I don't need to be there. I'm too important. My schedules, my plans, what I'm going to do, rather than make the effort humbly to say, you know, if prayer is important for my church and we ought to be having this prayer meeting, then why shouldn't I be there, right? That's the thing about conceit. It's so concealed. We usually don't see it in ourselves. Bible refers to it as, of us as thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We don't have to be braggadocious. We can just be very self-driven. There was a house painter that was at work. I, I heard this account. I don't know if it's, I assume it's a true story, but it makes the point anyway. So this house painter, is, he's working on one of these tall extension ladders leaning against the second story of a gabled house. And there's a small little boy that lives there playing around in the yard. And uh, as the painter's busily focused on his work, all of a sudden he discovers that this little lad has climbed halfway up this very lengthy ladder. He discovers that when the mother comes out to check the mails and turns around looking for the little lad and sees him halfway up. And so the woman uh, stifles a scream of panic. And the man, as he looks down, sees the child, perceives the danger. You know, if the child becomes too startled, what might happen? He might, you know, let go and, and fall. And the painter had been on ladders enough to know that it was more challenging 
to coax the child back down safely. And so he began to signal to the child, look up, Sonny, keep your eyes on me, keep climbing, come on, you can do it. And rung by rung, the child went higher and higher. Keep looking up, keep coming. At last, the child was safely in his arms. And then the painter carried him safely to the ground. Well, guess what? Each of us is somewhere on the ladder of life, aren't we? The answer is not to go backward, although sometimes it's tempting to feel like, you know, we do want to step back. But we're always called to move forward spiritually in our lives. We're always called to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We sometimes want to put it in park or neutral and just set a spell, so to speak. But we're running the race with patience that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. And you know what? Christ is the one at the top of the ladder. We want to get to his arms. And that's when we'll be saved. That's when there's that sense of completion. And so, dear friend, let's make sure that we do move forward. We don't give in to complacency. We don't allow conceit to, to, to settle into our lives. Let's make sure that we want to grow in the right way, but not because of fleshly motivation in our life, grasping, grasping for all the wrong things. May God give us discernment and wisdom as we progress in Christ. Father in heaven, thank you that there is room to grow in our Christian lives. Lord, thank you for the warnings that we can see in the spirits and the lives and the dispositions and the responses of these uh, people of Manasseh. Uh, Lord, we're not necessarily ambitious about adding acreage into our lives. Lord, we sometimes uh, want greater opportunities. Sometimes we uh, want to have more relationships. We want to have more functions in our life, whatever it is. Lord, help us to focus on the areas of growth where we need to have proper ambition that fits into your guidelines. Help us not to steer away from the hard areas, knowing by faith that you will give the victory and so, Lord, I pray that we would learn from these lessons and thank you that there is growth ahead for us spiritually in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.